Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome back team to another episode of the Pre-Paces podcast and we are delighted to bring you another fantastic guest in the shape of consultant haematologist and co-host of the Bludgication podcast series, Dr. Susie Morton. Susie was an absolutely fantastic guest and I know the one thing you won't want to miss in this episode is her quiz the consultant topic so listen out for that at the end of the show. But as usual, I want to pay tribute to this week's donators on the Buy Me A Coffee page. So, a massive thank you to Yuki, Callum and Angus, who we can all welcome to the Pre-Paces Podcast Success Story Hall of Fame, as all of them recently passed. And lastly, to Joseph, who has just recently sat his Paces exam. So Joseph, this one's for you. We've got everything crossed for you, buddy. Thank you so much to all of our fantastic donators who visited our page at buymeacoffee.com slash podcast. But enough on that for now. Let's get stuck into polycythemia with Dr. Susie Morton. Welcome back, listeners, to this episode of the Pre-Paces podcast. And for what I think is probably the first ever episode that we're covering, a pure history-taking station. Now, one of the types of history-taking stations which you may encounter in Paces is taking a referral from a GP who has performed some blood tests for whatever reason and then had an unexpected finding. So that's going to be our focus for this episode. And we're looking at the unexpected finding of polycythemia on a full blood count. Helping us cover this topic, we have consultant haematologist at QE Hospital in Birmingham, Dr. Susie Morton. Susie co-founded and presents a series of educational podcasts looking at haematological topics for both haematologists, as well as a smaller series of podcasts called Bludgication Bites, which examine problematic topics which are often encountered for non-haematologists. So we're delighted to welcome Susie to the show today. So Susie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. And not only that, but Susie's going to be taking on our regular feature at the end of the show, Quiz the Consultant, the quiz where our bosses take on a quickfire quiz on a topic of their own choosing, except it can't be related to medicine. So Susie, what have you chosen as your specialist subject? 
Well, after a lot of deliberation, I chose to have my specialist topic as Taylor Swift. I absolutely loved researching this as a major Swifty fan myself. Uh, it was a real delight to go back in time, go through her whole back catalogue. So we'll look forward to that at the end of the show. But for now, let's get started on polycythemia. So Susie, as we were discussing via our email exchanges, we talked about the likely lead-in as a pace station. And one of the things we discussed is the fact that polycythemia is more often an incidental finding on blood tests for another reason. And subsequently, they're often referred to you in a haematology clinic. Is this something you see relatively often? Absolutely. Yeah, we get we get referrals very, very frequently for, for a, as you say, usually an unanticipated um, high haemoglobin. And let's not forget that in paces, you're going to have five minutes to look at the history, look at the referral and compose some thoughts before you actually go into the station. And using that time to the best of your ability is it's best to try and jot down a few ideas of what you think this could be, the differential diagnosis and subsequently the questions which you're going to ask to try and demonstrate to the examiners that you are thinking of all the correct and appropriate differentials for this condition. But before we get started on that, Susie, let's get started on the basics of polycythemia. So if we can go through a few definitions, how do you as a haematologist define polycythemia? Absolutely. And I think that's a really difficult um, question, actually. And we get a lot of referrals for an isolated high haemoglobin. So I think the first two things to say are that when we're looking at polycythemia, this is not a one-off finding on a blood count that, that we're going to be sort of interested in in, in investigating. Um, it's got to be a um, sort of recurrent finding over a period of time. Um, and that's because, as people will know, the haemoglobin goes up and down naturally from day to day, really just depending on how hydrated you are amongst another of other um, factors. So we we need to see that the finding is persistent. And then the second thing that we um, look at, although we use haemoglobin every single day in our lives to define whether a patient is anemic or not, actually, when we're looking at the other end of the scale, we're much less interested in the haemoglobin and more interested in the hematocrit. Um, and there are various not very physiologically based reasons for that haemoglobin and hematocrit go up and down together there is some confusion, I think, sometimes um, with sort of old wives tales that get passed down through the generations of medics where people say, oh, you know, when particularly when people are anemic, oh, if the hematocrit doesn't change, then it's dilutional or or something of, of that variety. Um, but actually, to my mind, haemoglobin and hematocrit very much go, go hand in hand. But we define polycythemia based on the hematocrit value rather than the haemoglobin. So we will sometimes get referrals where the haemoglobin is high, but the hematocrit is actually um, perfectly within range. Um, and we will be less interested in, in um, investigating those people. So the WHO um, define um, polycythemia based on a hematocrit of um, 0.48 in women and 0.49 in men or 48%, 49%, however you, you view it. Um, but actually loads and loads and loads of people meet that, um, meet that criteria. Um, so as we say, we're looking for a, a persistent value that's raised. And really, if it's very borderline, um, it's less likely to be anything representing true pathology. Um, and obviously, as with most of these things, the further you go from the normal range, uh, the more likely you are to um, to identify people that have got conditions that, that we need to be finding out about. Yeah, fantastic. And the other thing to think about when we are considering the differential diagnosis of this 
incidental finding is the physiology and it really falls into several different categories which we'll go into later in the show when we talk about differential diagnosis but I think it's really important to have just a, a basic fundamental understanding of the the life cycle of a red cell and and how this can lead on to a diagnosis of polycythemia so I wonder I wonder if you can talk just briefly about the basic physiology of red cell production and and then we'll go on to talk about how we categorize the different types of polycythemia. Absolutely. And I think this is one of my favourite topics when I talk to people about haematology. It's one of the things that you can understand about haematology that makes the rest of life so much easier. Um, so red cells are, as everyone knows, produced in the bone marrow, but they come from a myeloid precursor. And the myeloid precursors can go on to become either red cells, um, neutrophils and monocytes, um, and basophils, a few other things, but you know, most of the white cells, except for lymphocytes, extremely importantly, or platelets. So in the in the bone marrow, your myeloid precursor will um, undergo differentiation into a number of different mature myeloid cells, one of which may be a red cell. Once the red cells are produced and are mature, they'll be released from the bone marrow into the peripheral blood. And we don't expect to see anything in the peripheral blood except for mature red cells and a few of these cells called reticulocytes, which people will know are slightly less mature red cells, but they're not so immature as to have nuclei. So if you've got a red cell with a nucleus in your in your circulation, that's, that's not normal. We don't expect to see those. And we wouldn't usually see them in polycythemia either. To sort of complete the discussion about the lifespan of a, a red cell, your red cells live for 120 days on average before being destroyed and obviously are then replaced by by more red cells being made from, from the marrow. Um, but the reason I make the point about the myeloid stem cell is that when you're looking at the full blood count and you're wondering whether there's any marrow pathology going on, you can look for c- clues in the other cell ranges, which will include your myeloid cells, uh, sorry, your neutrophils um, and your platelets, but importantly, not your lymphocytes. So lymphocytes, entirely different system. Yes, they do transit through the bone marrow in their maturation process um but they don't come from that myeloid stem cell perfect and i guess what the other thing to just touch on is the role of epo in the production of red cells so what sort of function does epo have in red cell production Absolutely. So um, erythropoietin is is one of those sort of hormonal influences on your myeloid maturation that's going to push your maturation towards the erythroid lineage so that you're going to get more red cells. So as we know, EPO is produced in the kidney and also in a number of sort of pathophysiological states um, and also sometimes given exogenously, um, and that will stimulate red cell production. Yeah, fantastic. And I think that's a good run through of the basic physiology. So now if we can move on to the definitions on, around polycythemia, we'll go on to talk about the differential diagnosis, but broadly it can be fitted into a few nice categories for us to then structure our differential diagnosis. So I wonder if you can go through how you would think about the different types of polycythemia, and then we'll go on to talk about the various causes. Definitely. And I think we were talking in this sort of um, pre-chat about how polycythemia is quite a difficult topic to approach because the differential diagnosis is is far and wide and most of it actually doesn't sit within haematology. Um, so you need to have that um, in mind when you're asking patients questions in the history, um, because actually a lot of the non-haematological causes are going to come out from, from those questions that, that you ask. So I have a little sort of schema in my head that I run through with, with polycythemia. And actually, 
again, it, to make it more confusing, it's not really mirrored in the order that we do investigations because of the ease of access to some of the, the, the various tests, um, which, which doesn't help. So I apologise on behalf of haematologists uh, for that to everyone. <laughs> um, so the first thing to consider as we all learn in medical school is that a lot of polycythemia is what we would determine as being um, apparent polycythemia. So when we um, measure the hematocrit or even the haemoglobin, all we're really doing is looking to see how much of the stuff in the tube that you take from the patient is taken up by haemoglobin. And there are two factors there, aren't there? There's how much haemoglobin you've got, but there's also how much plasma you've got. So if you don't have as much plasma as is normal, then your haemoglobin will appear to be increased because it's a concentration. Your hematocrit will appear to be increased because it's just a percentage of, of how much space is, is taken up. Um, so we need to think about patients who've got um, apparent polycythemia where they've got a reduced plasma volume. And that might be because they just happen to be dehydrated on the day um, or it might be because they run that chronically because of things like diuretics. Um, uh, or even smokers or people that drink a lot of alcohol um, will we'll see that very commonly. And we can actually do a test um, to distinguish true from apparent polycythemia, which we sometimes use in haematology, but usually not until we've done a kind of a first round of investigations, um, because it's quite um, a faff, to say the least. Uh, and that's to do with something called a red cell mass scan, which is a nuclear medicine scan. And actually, you can't access that in, in every hospital. We're very lucky in our hospital that, that we can. So usually, once we've done the first round of investigations, if we don't find anything of interest, we'll do a red cell mass scan. And if it's normal, then we'll, we'll discharge patients from, from clinic. So then if we think about our, our true versus our apparent, we've sort of asked questions about things that might make us think that the patient's got an apparent polycythemia. And particularly if the hematocrit isn't very raised, you know, there'll be a huge number of patients that fall into that category. Um, but then we focus on our true um, polycythemias and we're going to divide those into our primary and secondary. So our primary polycythemias um, are where we've got a primary hematological disorder. And the most common of those is going to be polycythemia rubrovera. And we can look for those in particular ways, which we can talk about um, a, a bit later. So that's our primary. And then our secondary, we're going to divide again further. Um, so the secondary is where something else is stimulating the marrow to produce the red cells. It's not an inherent marrow disorder. But within secondary, I tend to think of the kind of appropriate physiological secondary disorders. And that's going to be your people with your chronic lung disease, your congenital cyanotic heart disease really anybody that's struggling to get oxygen in. It was described to patients that if you can't get the oxygen in, then um, your body responds to that by appropriately making more red cells to make the most of the oxygen that, that is available. So that's your true appropriate secondary polycythemias. And then you've got your inappropriate secondary poly polycythemias, um, which again, you could divide further into things the patient knows about, things the patient doesn't know about. Um, the things the patient knows about are going to be your people that are taking exogenous EPO or testosterone. So we sometimes get patients that are taking testosterone that they've got at the gym or anywhere else. Sometimes it will be people that have been prescribed testosterone um, for low testosterone levels. And interestingly, we also see some um, transgender patients who are on testosterone, again, for medicinal purposes, but where it can be very difficult, particularly as men get older, to know what a normal and appropriate testosterone replacement level is. And there are extremely specialised services um, around sort of dealing with that. So as, as haematologists, we, we tend to just advise that we think that that's what the cause of the of the polycythemia is and, and sort of then ask them to, to, to take that on. And then we've got the causes that the patients don't know about. And that's where you've got your sort of array of very, very small print tumours that can secrete um, 
usually EPO, so your renal cell carcinomas, but also things like polycystic kidney disease will do it. Um, so I can remember once in clinic wondering whether I really needed to examine somebody with polycythemia that was very borderline. Um, and when I examined their abdomen, they had nice big fat kidneys that they, that they didn't know about. So yeah, absolutely um, underlining the importance of, of examining uh, patients with, with polycythemia. Um, you can also get things like um, medullary hemangiomas, parathyroid tumors yeah there's a huge number of 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 different things that that can cause that yeah fantastic so just to recap on that we've got the apparent polycythemia and then we've got absolute polycythemia or true polycythemia which we then divide into primary which is our polycythemia rubra vera and then we've got our secondaries which we can divide then into inappropriate and appropriate where appropriate is our um, hypoxic or chronic hypoxia conditions such as in chronic lung disease, things like uh, congenital heart disease, and then our inappropriate, which as you brilliantly divided again into things the patient knows about, things they don't know about. So absolutely love that. A really nice structured way of thinking about all the different differential diagnoses that really our listeners should be thinking about in those five minutes before they come on to um, take the history from these patients. So I guess the next thing is thinking about, well, we've got our differential diagnoses in mind. And so we can probably structure our history around those differential diagnoses to then demonstrate to the examiners that we're asking appropriate questions during this history. And I probably should say as well, it's possible that this could come up in a station five, but when I've thought about it, the station five is is so short. It's, you know, you're going to have four or five minutes to take a history and it's probably not going to be long enough for you to take as, as detailed a history as may be pertinent in this station, but it's still a possibility. So either way, let's go ahead and talk about the various symptoms which may be associated with these conditions. And so one thing that I noticed doing the research for this episode was I looked at up to date and they divided the symptoms into a number of different categories. And then I've sort of expanded on those to cover all our bases. So the first thing which I've looked at, Susie, or saw on up to date was they mentioned about hyperviscosity symptoms. And one thing that I noted about these was that they're actually quite vague and nonspecific. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, and with hyperviscosity, we also need to be a little bit careful with our um, sort of terminology and what we're thinking about, because normally when we refer to hyperviscosity, what we're talking about is people that have got plasma thickness, usually on account of a very high IgM paraprotein. So in the setting of something like Wardenstrom's macroglobulinemia, where you can expect to get things like visual disturbance, bleeding, nosebleeds, um, confusion. And we really don't see that with with polycythemia. Um usually with polycythemia when the hemascrit is very high uh, what we see is thrombosis um, so you will see patients you know I, I guess another lead-in could be a patient that presents with leg swelling and is found to have a high hematocrit um, or a new diagnosis of, of a dvt or a, a pe um, polycythemia is one of the few causes on a very short list of things that can cause both arterial and venous thrombosis so your listeners will need to to know that that list so uh, polycythemia is, is, is one of those things so in in terms of uh, symptoms on account of the high hematocrit that usually is what we see some patients do describe sort of muzzy headedness um sort of vague foggy thinking um and even they may not even notice that but then if we treat them they may say that they feel better but that is actually quite unusual um and i'd expect the hematocrit to be reasonably high before we were seeing that brilliant and then after that the next thing that was mentioned on up to date is as you mentioned some of the things thrombosis and bleeding how often do you find these patients with polycythemia have have thrombosis and bleeding? Is that more common than maybe the vague symptoms of viscosity? Yeah, so thrombosis is reasonably common um, and we may see it 
prior to presentation, we may see it after presentation. Um, obviously, some of the treatment that we give them, or most, almost all of the treatment that we give for primary polycythemia is aimed at reducing uh, thrombotic uh, risk. Um, so yes, we definitely do see that. Um, bleeding probably less so. Um, we do see bleeding paradoxically with um, essential thrombocythemia, which is the sort of PRV equivalent um, for your platelets, um, which makes no sense because people think the platelet count is high. The patients should be clotty, not bleedy. And on the most part, they are. But actually, when the platelet count goes above 1500, they can actually get what we describe as an acquired von Willebrand's disease, where all the platelets are absorbing all of your von Willebrand factor onto the surface and causing them actually to, to bleed. Um, so yeah, the, the polycythemia in itself isn't normally associated with, um, with, with bleeding. Yeah, fantastic. And just to knit back to one of the things you mentioned, the short list of conditions which causes arterial and venous thrombosis i wonder if you could just give the listeners that that list because that is something which is probably or could be encountered in clinical practice and and if there's usually a very short list having those at the tip of your tongue is really really helpful Absolutely. So there's basically three conditions that can do it. And then one thing that doesn't quite fit on the list, but it's still important. So so your myeloproliferative disorders um, will do it. Antiphospholipid syndrome will do it. So that is one of the few, when people talk about thrombophilia testing, which is a whole other topic, um, when people have had a thrombosis and it's unusual or it's unprovoked, an antiphospholipid screen is one of the very few tests that we will allow people to do, but we will also allow them to, to test for a myeloproliferative disorder. And I'll tell you the test for that in a minute um, and then the third thing is something very rare um, called PNH paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria which we see but is very rare in the real world and particularly in patients that have got a thrombosis plus a cytopenia we should be thinking about not just PNH but actually antiphospholipid as well and then the other thing that you have to think about is is it really an arterial thrombosis or was it an arterial thrombosis that originated in the venous circulation? So people that have got a right to left movement in terms of um, big VSDs and, and, and things like that. Um, so the, yeah, that's really your, your kind of short list of, of things that, that can give both. And that the physiology of clots um, derived in the venous and the arterial circulation are completely different. And, and that's why um, we don't tend to see the same risk factors for, for both conditions. <laughs> Fantastic. And you were going to mention the test which you would do for the uh, for the other conditions. So what was that? Yeah. So when we're looking at a primary polycythemia, or which is one of the myeloproliferative disorders, sorry, I'm sort of using the two interchangeably, which is which is unhelpful. Um, but the the main test that we would do for that is a Jack two. Um, but we can also sort of talk as we talk about diagnosing polycythemia um, about the sort of more s smaller print tests. But a JAK2 will pick up 90% of people with polycythemia rebrevera, 50% of people with essential thrombocythemia. And then the other myeloproliferative disorders, just again, for the sake of completeness and going back to what we said at the very beginning about this um, stem cell, that's a myeloid stem cell. So we've covered off the red cells, which is your PRV, the platelets, which is your essential thrombocythemia. And then we've got your sort of neutrophils, um, which actually CML, chronic myeloid leukemia, is the other myeloproliferative disorder. And then just to add more confusion, because we don't like to make it too easy for people, the fourth myeloproliferative disorder that people should be aware of is something called myelofibrosis, where you get proliferation of the fibroblasts in the bone marrow. So strictly not blood cells per se, um, but that's the, the fourth one. And the other thing just to kind of link in, if we're talking about the myeloproliferative disorders, is people may have read or be aware that essential thrombocythemia, less commonly, but PRV definitely can progress to myelofibrosis. 
all of those conditions that I've talked about can progress to acute myeloid leukemia, which I think is the real like mind blown, isn't it? How can a platelet disorder become a white cell disorder? It doesn't make any sense. What are you talking about? Um, but it's because as they accumulate more and more defects, usually um, sort of genetic and DNA defects, the cells become less and less able to um, mature into what their ultimate cell was supposed to be. So with your chronic myeloproliferative disorders, they can mature all the way, but there's just too many of them. And then as things get worse and worse and worse, they accumulate more and more mutations. They, the cells can't mature and they end up stuck at that blast um, stage, which is when we end up with acute myeloid leukemia. So a very small proportion of patients with ET and about 5 to 15% of patients with PV over 20 years will go on to get AML. But when they do get AML, it's extremely difficult to treat, even more difficult to treat than your bog standard acute myeloid leukemia in, in adults would be. So very important when we're diagnosing patients to be clear with them about those things. And also for people to be aware that, you know, there is definite merit in diagnosing polycythemia, rubavira. They need to be under follow-up. We need to reduce their thrombotic risk, which is the best thing that we do for them. Um, but we also need to be aware that they do have a lifelong risk of, of progression to something more acute and much more life-threatening. Yeah, that's fantastic. And this is really stuff which most IMT doctors really won't see unless they have a hematology job. So hopefully this is going to be really helpful. And in my ignorance, I probably did just think, oh, you know, polycythemia rubavira, that's sort of interesting and more of a notable finding and you just, you just sort of wipe it off and don't really think about it. But really important that, you know, knowing that it can lead on to something really quite concerning and life-threatening for the patient. Absolutely. So moving back to our list of symptoms, slight digression there. Let's get back on track. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Moving back to our list of symptoms, which our listeners will want to ask during their history taking station. So if we start off in, in the way that we introduced it and we talk about questions you would want to ask to probe for an apparent polycythemia. So Susie, what questions are, would be most important to ask for that? Yeah, so I mean, it's really going back, isn't it, to what the causes of the apparent polycythemia are. And we talked about that, that being um, a, almost by definition, a reduction in plasma volume. So that's going to be anything that dehydrates the patient. So classically, are you dehydrated? I mean, it's very difficult, isn't it, to ask patients, are you dehydrated? How much do you drink? And I'm really not a big fan of, of the, you know, or you have to drink X litres of water a day to maintain hydration. You know, you have kidneys that work and most people um, will, will you know, their their natural physiology will will balance their, their fluid balance balance. Um, but if you can see somebody who doesn't look after themselves very well, who looks clinically dry when you see them, maybe they've only had one blood test and the night before they drank a lot of alcohol or you know, you know something like that. They'd recently had diarrhea and vomiting or they were feeling unwell when they went to the GP and that was why the blood test was done. That's going to give you a clue. So I always ask the question, why was the why was the blood test done in the first place? And if they say, oh, I never go to my GP except when I'm unwell. And then you've got these counts that have only ever been done by the GP when the patient's unwell, then, then that's a bit of a clue. How much they drink drink, how much they smoke, and then other classic one is your drug history, isn't it? So are they on any um, diuretics are going to be the, 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 the obvious thing? Yeah, absolutely. And you, you touched on probably the most important question to start things off, which is exactly if it is an incidental blood test, it's why was the blood test done in the first place? So yeah, really important to, to put that up there as well as obviously, but still need to touch on it, the, the first most important question. And e either way in paces, I would suggest that it's unlikely to be an apparent polycythemia. You know, I think that is probably too basic and too too simple for an exemplary PACES candidate to want to take a, a, a full full history of this of this incidental finding. And I and I do love the the closet renal physician in you, Susie, who found it 
insulting that you, we would we would reassure our kidneys with a bit of water. Absolutely. <laughs> so moving on to the next bit on uh, we were talking about our true causes so if we then talk about our true primary cause we talked about polycythemia rubrivera and one of the most characteristic symptoms or features of this condition that the patients will report to you so the boring thing about haematology is most patients are completely asymptomatic with most of the conditions that we have. And we all learn religiously at medical school about B symptoms, which strictly speaking, we should only talk about in the setting of lymphoma, but they're the same symptoms that we would think about in, in polycythemia. Um, and some patients, and particularly um, there's a sort of small small proportion of patients that are, are very difficult to treat and do have really problematic symptoms. And the symptoms that they will have will be um, sweats. So these are not just, oh, I have a bit of a hot flush here and there, but waking up in the night drenched in sweat needing to change the bed sheets sweats um weight loss which we normally say 10 percent of your weight being lost over the last six months would be a sort of a significant amount and always in the history checking was it deliberate or was it not deliberate because obviously deliberate we're going to be less worried about but if you don't ask the question you're not going to know sorry i should also say in, in terms of the b symptoms fever although that's probably less common in, in this group of patients um and then in polycythemia we can see itching so pruritus can be really problematic and then the really famous one that's the like medical school gift is the aquagenic pruritus so you have a hot shower and then you feel very itchy um, and patients often don't volunteer that actually so you do have to ask for it and then the other thing to think about is going to be do they have a big spleen so this is where again haematology is breaking its own rules normally I would say a big spleen points in the direction of a lymphoid problem not a myeloid problem um, but in this case what we're seeing um, is hemopoiesis happening in the spleen and making the spleen a bit bigger and so you can ask patients do they have things like early satiety um, left upper up quadrant pain again it's it's very rare that you see patients that, that have that particularly at presentation but what I would say that you need to ask about is symptoms of a blood clot particularly in paces and you're very clearly signposting to the examiners then that you understand what the risks are associated with this blood count finding and you're wanting to know whether the patient has has got that now but also have they had a blood clot in the past that's going to raise your suspicion and it's also going to impact on how you treat them yeah brilliant and another thing which it may be a, a textbook or, or you know medical school question is is facial flushing is that a common finding or is that just a textbook thing so yes a, a plethoric um face uh, is sometimes seen in polycythemia vera but in fairness you can see it for other reasons as well you know it will be part of your sort of alcohol excess um so yes, not, not not a very helpful feature in terms of pinning it down as a primary polycythemia, but certainly in, in polycythemic patients for a variety of reasons, you can see that they've got a, a plethoric face. Yeah. Brilliant. So then moving up from our primary true polycythemia to our secondary causes in a true polycythemic patient, we're going to be talking about their chronic lung disease background and other questions, other questions which may point towards any signs of chronic hypoxia. So what sort of questions would be important there, Susie? Yeah, so again, you've got to think about are these things that are kind of diagnosed or not diagnosed? So you can ask them about, do they have um, any known respiratory um, or cardiac problems? Obviously, this congenital cyanotic cardiac disease is not usually something that turns up in a you know an adult clinic um, by surprise. But then you've also got to think about um, so smoking, which we mentioned in the setting of an apparent polycythemia, but also very relevant here. Um, so people may be smokers, but not realise that they've actually got um, sort of a, a low level chronic hypoxia going on. I ask about sort of chronic bronchitis symptoms. So do you wake up in the morning coughing? How often do you have chest infections? Are you breathless when you walk? Um, so, yeah, just sort of standard respiratory symptoms really to, to try and get to the bottom of, of that. 
Brilliant. And, and one of these things which is often goes unchecked is obstructive sleep apnea as well. How often do you see this as a, as a manifestation? And, and obviously this is going to be questions about hypersomnolence and, and sleeping during the day, etc. Absolutely. And really important set of questions for to, to ask people um, because often, again, it's something that they don't realise that they've got. And sometimes you might get a clue when they walk in the, the door in terms of body habitus, but um, by no means, you know, can you can you exclude a diagnosis in somebody that, that isn't overweight? So, yeah, absolutely asking about daytime somnolence, snoring um, and effectively doing an Epworth sleep score with them in, in clinic um, informally, if, if not formally, depending on, on how convinced you are of that as a diagnosis. And we certainly send people for sleep studies. Um, if we think that that's a, a possible diagnosis, definitely. And it's really gratifying to treat because they get their CPAP and their polycythemia improves. Um, so that's, that's you know, very, it, it makes the diagnosis. And it's also quite nice from a, a satisfaction perspective as well. Yeah, brilliant. And then moving on to our last set of questions, and this is for the inappropriate secondary uh, poly, true polycythemias, which is the the strange sort of abdominopelvic tumors or you know these these rare epo provoking tumors so again it's it may overlap with some of the other categories we've talked about but what sort of questions are important to include here yeah, I mean, it's difficult, isn't it, how far you go, and especially uh, not for paces, but in real life, you're going to be getting an abdominal ultrasound anyway to look for spenomegaly and for all of these things. Um, but yes, you definitely want to know, you know, have they got a known diagnosis? I always look to see whether they've had imaging um, recently. Um, and also bearing in mind that some of these tumours are head and neck tumours as well. So it's not just um, in the abdomen. So, I mean, you can ask questions about weight loss and things, but the reality is that most of these patients won't have that. I guess you could ask about a history of polycystic kidney disease. I tend to just ask a very broad family history um, and most people are usually aware if they've got that in the in the family and have been screened themselves anyway. So it's not it's not really that that fruitful a part of the of the discussion if if that makes sense. But what you absolutely do have to ask about is the ones that the patients know about because they may not volunteer that in the first instance and you do often have to be quite persistent to be clear you know are you taking anything that's not prescribed um you know as we've all been taught to do historically but i think possibly a lot of us um don't always do in our day-to-day practice let's let's say um so yeah that that it really is important because if you don't get that in history you're not going to get that anywhere else and then moving on to the social history, I mean, this is, again, going to be reflecting some of the things we've already talked about. We're going to be asking about smoking, maybe indicative of chronic lung disease. They may volunteer something about athletic performance in the social history. You know, that's something it's 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 in the small print. But, you know, are you an elite athlete or are they a weightlifter or something similar? You know, that might be a question to ask. You'd be really surprised as well. People are not elite athletes that are taking these things often. And it's just it's just part of the culture in, in many places. So, yeah, I think it's we need to be mindful as physicians that this is quite normalised amongst some pockets of, of the population and they don't see it as being unusual and, and definitely not as being dangerous either. And it may not be EPO, it may not be injectables, it may be oral um, as well um, and, and testosterone containing products as well. So people may not really actually even know what it is that, that they're having. So I always ask the question, are you taking anything that isn't prescribed and then sort of take things from there? So that pretty much wraps up all of the history taking part of this station. But let's not forget, in the five minutes at the end of the station, obviously you're going to have the one minute to collect your thoughts, to discuss and think about your investigations and management, which you'll be discussing with the examiners shortly after the station finishes. So in terms of the discussion with the examiners, Susie, it goes without saying that if you're doing a history taking station, at least my view was you always then say I would conduct a full physical examination looking for 
this, that, and the other. And it's going to be looking for the things which we've discussed. But I, I don't want to dwell too much on the hypothetical examination findings because we're, we're treating this as a history-taking station. I guess the other thing just to go without saying as well is that mentioning a physical examination, routine bedside tests, possibly mentioning you would look closely at the uh, oxygen saturations, looking for possible chronic lung disease. And you may find hypertension in some of these conditions, especially obstructive sleep apnea as well. But I just thought those are important things to mention, but we are just going to skip through right to the investigations part of it, which is maybe where the examiners may be more interested. And clearly the, they will also ask about your differential diagnosis, which we have already discussed. So you'll need to go through the symptoms which we've talked about, decide on a list of possible differential diagnoses, and then go on to talk about the investigations. So how would we go about structuring our investigations for these patients once we've um, finished the history taking part of our station? Absolutely. So as I alluded to at the beginning, unfortunately, the investigations that we do don't really relate in terms of sense and logic to the um, to the different types of diagnoses that, that we've talked about in the sense that we tend to do the ones that are easy and available and cheap and non-invasive first and then move on um, after that. So I was explained to patients that the key is to distinguish the primary from the other types of polycythemia. And so the first thing to do is a repeat blood count. So if you haven't got multiple recordings, you definitely want to um, be doing further blood counts. Um, you definitely want to do a chest x-ray looking for any um, undiagnosed um, respiratory problems, particularly in a smoker, but we would usually do one in, in everybody. And a abdominal ultrasound looking you know, for organomegaly, if you want a very um, brief answer, but specifically for splenomegaly, which might might point towards a primary polycythemia, um, but also, as we've said, liver and um, particularly renal tumours or polycystic kidneys um, as well. Yeah, fantastic. And then one of the things which we have already discussed is the is the role of erythropoietin. And how routinely would you do uh, an EPO level in the patients that you see in clinic? So yes, absolutely. And, and we use both the EPO and the JAK2 very early on in the haematology clinic, um, mostly because by the time the patients have got to us, people want a definitive answer. Um, so I wouldn't suggest that people go sending these off from sort of medical clinics or AMU or that GPs are doing them in the community. But if a, a patient's got a persistent polycythemia without any um, clearly secondary cause, um, then I'll do both an EPO level and a JAK2. Um, so the EPO level is one of those things that should be immensely helpful because if it's a primary polycythemia, it should be low if you've got an EPO secreting tumour or exogenous EPO um, on board then it should be high um, and if you've got a, a secondary polycythemia again it, it should be high because that's the whole sort of mechanism of how those red cells are being produced in real life I'll tell you for free the normal range is 5 to 25 and 90% of the ones that we send are between 5 and 25 and when it's low it's not when you want it to be low and when it's high <laughs> it's not when you want it to be high so in real life it's extremely unhelpful test but it, it's you know it, it, I suppose it adds to the picture and, and as with all things uh, in medicine, we're, we're taking uh, the whole picture together. So yes, an EPO level can be helpful to distinguish between a primary and secondary polycythemia. Um, and then your JAK2, again, we send a lot of JAK2s really just to say, oh, we looked for primary polycythemia and we didn't find it. So, you know, keep looking elsewhere or we're happy to kind of blame the polycythemia on this secondary thing that we think that we've identified. Again, that's not to say that everyone out there with a slightly high um, hematocrit needs to have a JAK2 done, but but we will do that usually um from from clinic perfect and one question that i had is is how often is there a necessity to, to perform a bone marrow biopsy in in these patients with suspected polycythemia is that a, is that a routine investigation 
So no, not at all. So very few of these patients will have a bone marrow biopsy done. So the, the times that we would do it would be if the JAK2 was negative, but we couldn't find any other reason why they were polycythemic. And we were convinced it was a, a true polycythemia, but with no apparent cause. And we'd scan them from head to toe, probably about the point at which I'm requesting an MRI head and neck to look for their meningioma or their parathyroid tumour. Um, I'm also doing a, a bone marrow biopsy to, to look for whether this is a, um, a indeed a, a primary polycythemia. Having said that there are other genetic tests that we can do on peripheral blood first so people might have heard of something called the x 12 mutation which is kind of nine nine of the ten percent that you don't pick up with your your jack two so these days it's very far down the line and the other time that we would do it is if we know it's polycythemia we don't marry them all um but if they've got something weird going on in their count if their blood film looks like they might have some fibrotic changes if they're cytopenic which they shouldn't be just with primary polycythemia then that might indicate that they've got fibrosis um on board and we would need to do a bone marrow to, to diagnose that and that would have very significant uh, prognostic implications um but also would open some avenues up to additional treatments that we could use so yeah bone marrow biopsy not really part of your bog standard polycythemia workup or at least not until much further down the road yeah perfect and next we'll probably be moving on to our secondary causes and again this is going to be tailored to the exact symptoms and your exact preferred diagnosis so obviously for things involving chronic hypoxia so your your chronic lung disease it's going to be lung function tests chest x-ray possibly ct imaging of the chest sleep apnea as you've already mentioned you mentioned sending patients for polysomnography with overnight oximetry and any suggestion of uh, malignancy, uh, of intra-abdominal malignancy, particularly, as you've already mentioned, an ultrasound scan or a, uh, or a CT scan of the abdomen looking for um, evidence of malignancy. And then are there any particular tests which you would ask for the, the causes the patient knows about, let's call it? Do you ever test routinely for that in serology or any other tests or is that purely just from the history? So it's mostly from the history. Your EPO will help you there in terms of um, sort of um, helping to nail it down. So you'll expect your EPO level to be to be high, but as I say, often it's normal, which is which is unhelpful. Um, so so no, um, there's not not really any specific things that you can do that that will help. It's really a diagnosis of exclusion and to say to the patient that we've looked for all of these other things and we haven't found them. Um, the other thing that we haven't talked about, which again is very fine print, but we do find one every now and then, is somebody that's got a congenital reason to have uh, a high red cell mass, and we see various mutations involved in the pathways with, with, with red cell production where where people can be polycythemic. Um, and those ones are are usually notable for the rock steady hematocrit that's high and has been high forever, always at about the same level. Um, and we can sometimes send um, genetic studies to look for that. And we're doing that increasingly, not really convinced that it helps us. We don't really know how to treat them, whether they need treatment or not. Are they at higher risk of thrombosis? We don't really know. Um, but I suppose just in terms of small print and things that you might do as your kind of third line investigations, um, to be thinking about that clearly if there's a family history then then you might be thinking about that a bit earlier on yeah fantastic and i mean i guess that's going to make up the majority of the discussion with the examiners at the end of the station because i i don't know that i would expect a paces candidate to be able to go in depth in terms of the management of these patients and the most appropriate response I would probably suggest is they would say, well, they need to be referred to a, a hematology clinic. Well, or, or, or depends on the exact cause of uh, exactly what your differential diagnosis is. So that will depend on the diagnosis of, of that given station. But just presuming that it's a primary cause, maybe rather than the secondary causes we've discussed, it would be appropriate to say 
they need referral to a hematology clinic for further management. And so this is the section where we're going to talk about as hematologists, this is stuff which we won't see as general medical junior doctors or junior registrars. So this is hopefully going to be a real peek behind the magician's cloth. So maybe you can just talk briefly about how do you manage these patients with a suspected primary polycythemia when they come to you in clinic and um, they may or may not be symptomatic, they may or may not have complications. So if you could just expand a bit on that for us. Absolutely. And I also do think that it's very important for you, not just for exams, but in life to understand that whether we diagnose them with a primary polycythemia or not is going to impact on the treatment um, that that we give them. The treatment isn't as magical as you might think. I will explain uh, more in a minute. So we talked before about the risk with um, primary polycythemia being a lot about thrombotic risk and then partly about transformation risk. There's really very little we can do about that transformation risk other than keep them under follow up. The thrombotic risk, um, we will put them on aspirin. So we don't recommend aspirin routinely for people with a secondary polycythemia. Um, but with a primary polycythemia, we know that that reduces their thrombotic risk. So if they've got no other reason to be on anything else, we'll put them on aspirin. If they're already on clopidogrel or anticoagulation or indeed aspirin, that's fine. We don't need to you know, increase it. And then the important thing is to control their hematocrit. So this goes back to what I was saying at the beginning in terms of the big clinical trials that show the um, the evidence base for reducing hematocrit was based on hematocrit, not hemoglobin. So we will keep their hematocrit for primary polycythemia below 0.45. And we can do that in a number of different ways. So the most common way that we do that in polycythemia is with venesection. So just like when a donor goes and donates blood, these patients will come to our day unit and we'll take a unit of blood off them and we'll sadly throw it away. Uh, and we'll do that as often as we need to. And really that that works by rendering the mind efficient. So it's not a very clever, clean or pleasant way to do it um, because running around with a ferritin below 10 so that you can't generate more red cells is, um, you know, causes its own symptoms. Um uh, but yes, so the mainstay of, of treatment is really venesection and aspirin. If we've got patients that don't tolerate venesection, poor venous access, keep fainting, um, don't really like it, um, then we can use a drug called hydroxycarbamide, which you might have seen patients on. Um, it's chemotherapy, but it's extremely gentle. Um, it's a non-selective sort of selective, um, I was going to say nacre of bone marrow, um, non-selective. <laughs> uh, it non-selectively um, reduces your blood count. So the danger with it is you can make people um, uh, thrombocytopenic and neutropenic with it. So it requires close monitoring. It's taken as a tablet. Most people have no side effects from it. It can cause ulcers. It can cause skin malignancies. Um, we counsel patients about that. They stay on it for the rest of their lives. And for the vast majority of patients, the aspirin plus venesection and or hydroxycarbamide is all they need. For young patients that want to have a family, um, we will use um, interferon instead, which is a much better treatment than it used to be. We've got new preparations, which we don't need to go into. Um, and then there's a kind of, um, yeah, it gets more and more small print as you kind of go through the treatment options. But the key thing to know is that um, aspirin and reduction of the hematocrit to reduce their thrombotic risk are the main things that we do and then follow up in terms of uh, their risk of, of transformation. And that that is different to your secondary polycythemias, where even if you've got somebody where you can't treat the underlying problem for whatever reason, we wouldn't venesect them down to below that level. Um, whether we venesect them or not is a little bit controversial. And the level at which we would do it is also a bit controversial. But whether they've had a thrombosis before um, will sort of impact on that. So, yeah, we have a, a different approach depending on the, the underlying reason for the high hematocrit. Yeah, so there's no point venesecting people who have a secondary appropriate polycythemia because that's part of their physiology. 
absolutely well yes and no so if it's appropriate in a congenital cyanotic heart disease then we'll let the hematocrits go you know 0.6 0.7 you know eye-wateringly high and we don't do anything about that if you've got somebody that's got a secondary polycythemia because of um copd or something like that and they've had a thrombosis then we would venesect those um and we would usually use a hematocrit of something around 0.5 there are different guidelines that, that say different things secondary polycythemias with no sort of increased thrombotic risk sometimes we do venesect those to keep them below 0.55 um, but you'll find that practice varies around the country bsh guidelines british society for hematology guidelines talk a bit about the lack of evidence base there are nice guidelines on it as well interestingly which quote a different level so i think for, for paces the answer is as you say that we don't but in real life sometimes we do and I guess another part of the management, which is important to just touch on if you're um, being comprehensive about it, is the management of any complications. And that would include any thrombotic phenomena which had occurred as a, as a complication of being polycythemic. Absolutely. And you would manage them like you would any other um, blood clot. So if it was an MI, you would manage them as you'd ma- ma- uh, manage an MI. If it was a venous thromboembolism, you would manage them the same, but you would obviously consider that to be a provoked event and therefore they'd be looking at lifelong treatment for, for that. Fantastic. Well, I think that's pretty much everything we had to cover on polycythemia. So now you know what time it is. It's time for the greatest regular non-medical quiz to feature on a medical podcast. It's Quiz the Consultants. Welcome to our regular feature, Quiz the Consultant. The quiz where our bosses take on a specialist subject of their own choosing, with the caveat that it has to be non-medical. So Susie, you mentioned at the start of the show, but what have you chosen as your specialist subject and why have you chosen it? So my specialist subject is Taylor Swift um, because... uh, Do you need a reason? (laughs) You don't need a reason. Who doesn't like Taylor Swift? I mean, I love Taylor. Everybody loves Taylor Swift. They pretend they don't, but they do. (laughs) So as I said at the start, I absolutely love this. I'm a big Swifty fan myself. So going back through her back catalogue was a real delight. And hopefully you'll get a good score on this quiz, even though it's just for pride. No prize is involved, but you're, you're... Pride as a, as a fellow Swifty is at risk. <laughs> okay, so this is how we play. There's 10 quickfire questions, two points if you can get the answers without the multiple choice options, but if you need a helping hand, we can give you four multiple choice options, one of which will be correct. And um, if you get it right after that, you get one point. So there's 20 points up for grabs. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So question number one. Which Taylor Swift album has the title, which is the year of her birth? 1989. And she's off the mark for two points. Correct. Okay. Now I should say that half of these questions, so five of them are general Swifty questions and the other half are guess the song from the lyrics. And I've gone with the starting lyrics for each of these songs. So you have to guess the song from the lyrics. So which song starts with the lyrics? Nice to meet you. Where you been? I can show you incredible things. I can hear the tune in my head and I can't think and it, because there's some very faint music playing in the background I can't actually think of what it is I'm gonna have to ask for a multiple choice no problem the multiple choice is it a blank space is it b don't blame me is it c lover or is it d style I think it's style it's no. blank space <laughs> blank oh. space that was my second choice oh bad times <laughs> Okay, question number three. According to bestsellingalbums.org, 
Which of Taylor Swift's albums has sold the most copies? Gosh, I don't know. It's difficult to say, isn't it? It is difficult to say. I have to say, I, it's it's my favourite album of hers. But not not not, not, that that, not that that's a particular... Your favourite album? Oh, pressure's on. I'm going to say 1989 again. It was 1989. <sighs> yes! <laughs> Over 15 million copies of 1989. And I think that is her best album. Speaking it's a good one. Album. It's a good one. Just wall-to-wall bangers. Right. <laughs> question, question number four. Guess the song from the lyrics. Which song starts with the lyrics? It feels like a perfect night to dress up like hipsters and make fun of our exes. 22. It is 22. Yes. Correct. <laughs> That's one of my favourites. Question number five. In 2009, Taylor Swift's video You Belong With Me won Best Female Video at the MTV Video Music Awards. But which controversial rapper interrupted Swift's acceptance speech? I know this. <laughs> See, I'm not very good on my rappers, so I'm going to say something that's completely inappropriate. It wasn't Jay-Z, was it? No. Who was it? Give me a choice. Give me a choice. Give me a choice. I can give you the multiple choice options. Is it A, Jay-Z? Is it B, 50 Cent? C, Kanye West? Or D, Dr. Dre? It was Kanye West. It was Kanye West for one point. Question number six. Guess the song from the lyrics. Which song starts with Midnight, you come and pick me up. No headlights, long drive. Could end in burning flames or paradise. I'm going to have to ask for multiple choice on that one, sorry. No problem at all. Multiple choice. Is it A, style? B, shake it off? C, I wish you would? Or D, bad blood? Is it bad blood? It's not bad blood, it's style. Is it? Oh. Question number seven. Which Swifty song credits the band Right Said Fred as the chorus has the same rhythmic pattern as their famous song, I'm Too Sexy? I don't know. I'm going to need to ask for the multiple choice options. Is it A, all you had to do was stay? Is it B, look what you made me do? C, welcome to New York? Or was it D, bad blood? I'm going to say, look what you made me do. It was look what you made me do, because <laughs> it was the, it was that I'm too sexy for my shirt. Yeah, 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 yeah. Question number eight. That's also getting cut. <laughs> <laughs> Question number eight. Guess the song from the lyrics. We were both young when I first saw you. I close my eyes and the flashback starts. I have to sing the whole song through in my head to get to the chorus to work out what it's called. You have to. You're going to have to give me the options again. This is terrible. Okay, the options are... Sorry. <laughs> the options are A, The Man, B, Love Story, C, Gold Rush, or D, Superstar. Love Story. It was Love Story, yeah. correct. Which longtime friend of Swifties collaborated on the songs Everything Has Changed, Endgame, and Run? Um, the ginger guy. <laughs> <laughs> I can't include that. <laughs> Ed Sheeran. Ah, uh-huh, yeah, just you know, one of the most famous musicians of the world. Yeah, don't worry about me. <laughs> 
This is my problem is everything I know about other people know way more about it than me. But anyway, I hope you'll cut <laughs> out all the horrible bits and make it sound like I'm not a complete moron. Question number 10. And again, guess the song from the lyrics. We could leave the Christmas lights up till January. This is our place. We make the rules. I want to say New Year's Day, but I'm worried that that's not right. You can still take the multiple choice options. Yeah, we'll take the multiple choice options. Okay, multiple choice options. Is it A, August, B, Don't Blame Me, C, Cruel Summer, or D, Lover? Lover. It was Lover, and that gives you a final score at the end of a Swifty special of Quiz the Consultant of 12 points. Oh, scrape through. <laughs> oh, Susie, it's been an absolute delight quizzing you on Swifty first and foremost, but also discussing polycythemia in a really in-depth, comprehensive review of this uh, important condition. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. No problem. Thanks for having me. And listeners, that is the end of another show. Please don't forget, we always love to hear from you. So give us a shout on our Twitter. It's at Prepaces Podcast. You can like, follow or subscribe to the podcast. And please, if you have a chance, leave a five-star review to the show wherever you get your podcasts. As ever, if you really want to go above and beyond and support the show, maybe you've recently passed, maybe you're looking forward to your exam and you found the podcast helpful, we'd really appreciate it if you can make a pay-what-you-can donation. It's entirely voluntary. It's buymeacoffee.com slash podcast. But for now, we're just about out of time. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time on the Pre-Paces Podcast. Podcast.